so I can take the glasses and move them around so I can see what I'm doing up here. All right. What's that? I, I'm doing fine. Yeah, I think I should be fine. We don't want me in light. We've learned that over time. Yeah. Oh, eventually it'll be winter, won't it? Maybe not. So I can go is what you tell me. Okay, here we are, off and running, September 24th, 2023, lecture discussion number 203 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 14, Genesis 15. We'll be back on, whoops, I didn't get this right, I didn't get a chance to change that. So we're back on October the 8th, I should say that, not on September the 24th, that's today. Yom Kippur begins at sundown in Jerusalem uh, on the 24th of, of September. And typologically, when we get into Yom Kippur and all the feast days, are you changing something for me? Okay. Well, go ahead. And Do you need the pencil for it? Or? Here you go, young lady. Okay, so typically or typologically, Yom Kippur is associated with the tribulation. So the feast days have have relevance to major events in Scripture, and they have anticipated that Yom Kippur, the uh, October the eighth, is when we'll be back. And Yom Kippur has been, like I said, traditionally associated with the tribulation. And Sukkot, which begins September 29th and it ends October 6th, is considered to portray the millennial reign of Christ. And then Rosh Hashanah, as you know. That is the abduction of the bride of Christ at midnight. Uh, some would say that, of course, the winter solstice is the midnight, and I'm really hoping it is, because obviously if, if I am presenting this lecture number 203, the abduction of the bride either did not occur, or we and I were not included, which means we're headed for martyrdom. Revelation 7, 9-17. Paul and Silas were prepared. They were prepared, Acts 16.25, 1 Corinthians 4.9. They knew full well the purpose that God intended the assembly of angels, a la Job 1.6, to witness the deaths of his saints. Now, God knew that the saints were going to be martyred in the tribulation. And he made sure, and he knew the apostles were going to be martyred. And he made sure that the angels witnessed that. Now, why would he do it? See, he knew that the, the death of the saints at the hands of wicked mankind and the demonic and, and faithful angels are going to be involved in all of this. And the obvious question again is why? Why is he putting the, the apostles on display? And he does the same thing in Revelation. And Revelation 9 plays into this somewhat. That's where he the the pit is released and all of these wicked beings are able to come out and they attack the men who did not have the seal of God but they can't kill them which is always an interesting thing to, to, to consider and that, that raises Job 1.12 and Job 2.6 in other words God creates a situation where all the wicked men who do not have the seal of God are in the clutches, if you will, they're being attacked by the demons that were imprisoned and released in Revelation 9, and they can't be killed. So he's put a limit on the deaths of these people in the tribulation, the wicked men. And again, that raises Job 1.12 and 2.6 because he tells uh, Satan, go ahead and do what you have to do, but you can't take his life, right? 
So you see that relationship in Revelation 9. In case you were wondering about that. Again, why does God allow this? What's the lesson for the angelic realm? Why does he put them into an assembly and then he makes them watch the deaths of the saints and the apostles? Both in the tribulation and both right after the uh, ascension of Christ. Okay? What's the lesson for the angelic realm? To repeat that question. And, And admit it. I know what you're thinking already. When I began to raise Revelation 2, 7 through 10 and Matthew 25, 1 through 13, which is the abduction of the virgin bride passages, most of you out there are screaming out, what does this have to do with the sop of John 13, 26, and much less the hedge, the kiss, and the cup? Why did you divert? There's no continuity here. There's no connectivity. What are you doing? You're just throwing things at the whiteboard and none of them work and you hope something will stand there. I should say this, that was excellent screaming. But that's, and that is indeed where we discontinued Lecture 202, September the 10th. The hedge, the kiss, the sop, and the cup. And, and that, that, of course, is the hedge of Job 110, the kiss of Matthew 26, 48, Luke 22, 48, Luke 7, 40 through 50, the sop, the, the bread of honor at John 13, 26, and the cup of Gethsemane at Matthew 26, 39 through 42. That's the cup that will not pass away from Christ unless he drinks it. Matthew 26.42 And obviously, this is the one and only means here. This is the only one in solution. The only solution. The cup cannot pass. Why not? Nothing else will suffice here. Why is that the case? He has to drink it. Perhaps uh, some of you remember my insistence insistence uh, from the last lecture that the bread dipped by God. God dips the bread, John 13, 26. That's God doing that. That is connected to the cup and must be that must be drunk by God. God has to drink the cup and God is dipping the bread. That's what he's doing. And, and Jesus, of course, is God, right? Acts 5.32. So therefore, the hedge accusation lie of Job 1.10 and then the kiss of delivery of Matthew 26.48 and Luke 22.48, we have that fit together as well. And our task is now to investigate how and why these interlock. Because they do. At least I'm proposing that they do. And the process begins to show promise when we fall back and contemplate what Christ at Luke 7.40, what he does at 7.40 with Simeon the Pharisee, not Simeon the Cyrenian, Simeon the Pharisee. He's talking to Simeon the Pharisee here, who then immediately becomes a part of the Simeon prophecy. So he's part of the... You go and collect all the Simeons. Simeon the Cyrenian, Simeon the Pharisee, Simeon who is the in the in the tribes of Israel, Simeon Peter, and you put them all together and you have a prophecy. And so he's, he's in that, the Simeon the Pharisee. John 21, 15 through 19 is the Simeon prophecy. The three questions of the Simeon prophecy and the three denials of Matthew 26, 69 through 75, those are also part of the Simeon prophecy. Alongside the Simeon, the Cyrenian, Matthew 27, 32, Mark 15, 21, Luke 23, 26. And I should add, once you start to understand and get grips on all of these pieces and you adhere to the... Uh, if you do... Or I'll deviate here. If you are if you are believing one of these that believe, Cassimian the Cyrenian is a fantastic piece of information for everybody. Unfortunately, the church today adheres to this old trope that Simeon the Cyrenian had to carry 
the cross beam or the cross of Christ. Because why? Because Christ was too weak to do it. Right? He was tired. So they gave him the cross beam to the Serenian. That can't possibly be true because he's omnipotent God. The omnipotent God, all-powerful God in the flesh, cannot be too weak to carry his cross. It's just ludicrous. And uh, I have to deal with that nonsense quite a bit in my so-called career. So what, what should you do with that view if you have it? If you have it out there, here's my advice for you. Uh, race quickly, immediately to the first trash receptacle that you can find. Throw it in. And then you add gasoline. You, light, you have lit mass, matches and road flares. Get rid of that because it's not, it's not defensible and it's actually nonsense. And obviously, Simeon the prophet, Luke 2.25, is also part of this, right? The old man that is waiting to see the Christ and he might, now he can die because he has seen him. Lots of material right there. He's waiting to see. He calls Christ the consolation of Israel. Now, why does he call him the consolation of Israel? And, and, and when he held the consolation of Israel in his hands, as a, when Christ is hiding his deity inside of an infant, right? He holds the consolation of Israel. He says this to God. You are letting your servant depart in peace. And now he can die. There's a lot of meaning there. We'll have to put all that together because we have Simeon involved in all of this. Why is Christ called the consolation of Israel? Why was Simeon the prophet waiting for him? Why did he, how did he know the, the consolation of Israel was coming? How did he know that it was coming in his lifetime? Or did he think that he might not get to see it? But he got to see it. And he says to God, I can die in peace now. An extraordinary statement. Waiting and waiting and waiting for the consolation of Israel. Finally he comes and he says, okay, death means nothing to me now. And we have this great behold of Luke 2.25 that ties to the statement of Simeon at 2.30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Christ obviously is the salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. He's speaking to the Godhead, right? And Anna the prophetess at Luke 2.26 or 2.36 figures into it as well. As does the tribe that descends from Simeon, the brother, the son, Simeon of the tribes of Israel with Levi, they murdered the circumcised men of Hamer. And for this, this is the Dinah incident, the famous Dinah incident. And because of that, Israel was made obnoxious to the world, Genesis 34.17-31. And they are still obnoxious to the world. And it all traces back to the Dinah incident of Genesis 34. And ultimately, Joseph binds and imprisons Simeon when he is pretending to be the second to command of Pharaoh. He is the second in command to Pharaoh. But he's pretending to be an Egyptian, essentially. He's not disclosing his identity. And he imprisons Simeon. And I've said many, many times that Simeon means the hearing of Israel. So he deafens Israel is what he does. Genesis 42:24. So, uh, and note also Revelation 22 through 3. And all of this and more begins to answer Christ's question to Simeon the Pharisee. Now, I know you're still screaming out there. What we were supposed to talk about the heads of kisses up the cup. And now I'm in Simeon the Pharisee. And who is Simeon the Pharisee? What's he got to do with any of this stuff? How about that abduction of the bride? What has that got to do with any of this? What's going on here? The man is crazy. 
But anyway, all of that begins to answer Christ's question to Simeon the Pharisee. Whenever God asks somebody a question, wow. You just got to look at it and look at it and look at it and say, what is he doing? Because he's doing something amazing. So God asked Simeon the Pharisee at Luke 7, 41 through 42, which, which is connected to the kiss of Judas, in case you were wondering. That's how we get here. His first question to him is to the Simeon the Pharisee. Now keep in mind, Simeon is a Pharisee. He's not, he's not necessarily a believer. In fact, it's obvious in my opinion that he's not a believer. Nor does he intend to be. He's an antagonist. And he says to him, God says to him, Tell me therefore which will love more, the certain creditor. So let me repeat that really carefully. He said, Tell me therefore which of these who I give you will love the creditor, the certain creditor, more. And the certain creditor is the one who freely, and I should say that really carefully too, the certain creditor freely, not not predestinationally, so he freely, not predestinately, forgives sin and death. So Christ is asking Simeon the Pharisee, who's going to love me more? Which of the debtors will love me more, Christ is saying to him. Christ is the certain creditor. He's the drinker of the cup. That's how we get to the cup. And the question number two, he says to Simeon the Pharisee, see this woman? Do you see the woman? So who's the other, who's the other debtor? If it's not the woman, who's, the, who's going to love me more? He says to Simeon the Pharisee, you are the woman. Have you seen the woman? The woman has not ceased to kiss me since the time he came in. Essentially, what Christ said. The woman has not ceased to kiss Christ since the time he came in. How long was that? How long did she kiss him? All she's doing is kissing him continually. How long? And she wouldn't stop until when? When does she stop? She, he stops her. What's he say to her? And he's asking that Simeon, the Pharisee, which one of you is going to love me more? This woman or you? Now, what do you think is the answer from Simeon, the Pharisee? It's not given. It's inferred. But she stops. The woman stops kissing him when he says something. What does he say? Do you remember? Do you know? He says, your sins are forgiven. And she stops. So kissing God gets your sins forgiven. Loving God gets your sins can, uh, forgiven. Anyway, the point, yea, a point, to solve these questions about the hedge, the kiss, the sop, and the cup, that's going to require years of study. Years of study. What we're going to do today is just go out and get more bricks and, and start building foundational systems. People ask me all the time, where would you get your medical information? Because I am a fake electrophysiologist cardiologically. I am a fake urologist because I've passed 126 kidney stones and I know all about extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy and laser lithotripsy. Uh, I know all those procedures because I've had them all. I am, uh, what else am I? I'm now a gastroenterologist because I have chronic gastritis and I have it now and I have it while I'm speaking to you. So my stomach is constantly in pain 24 hours a day. Most of the time, sometimes I get some relief, but most of the time it's always... So I know all about sucrophates. I know all about proton pump inhibitors. I, I know everything about inflammation of the stomach, and I understand duodenal 
ulcers because I'm a fake urologist and I'm a fake gastroenterologist. And people ask me all the time when I talk to these medical professionals and I can use their language because I'm weird that way, right? And uh, they ask me, they say, uh, where did you get your medical degree? And I said, well, I didn't get a medical degree, but I prepared for medicine by laying sheetrock or hanging sheetrock and laying foundational footings. So concrete work and sheetrock like, allowed me to gain all this information with regard to medical technologies and medical procedures. And they look at me like I'm completely crazy and because they do not expect somebody who mostly worked with his hands in, in physical labor to be able to talk to them about their field. They, they, they just can't believe that. And I, and I obviously play stupid for a reason. I tell let them know that almost anybody can do what you're doing. All you have to, now we have the Internet. We can find out what you're doing pretty easily. Anyway, all of that doesn't mean anything. We're going to be laying foundations today, and we're going to lay foundations for a long time. The best I am able to cover this subject is a shallow depth. But we should endeavor to persevere. Okay. In order to make progress on the dipped bread of the Passover meal, and again, remember, God is the one. It's in his hand. God, this is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, infinite God has a hold of a piece of bread in his hand, and he dips it. Okay? So he's got How complex do you think this is going to be? So recognize that, that this is something that we're going to deal with for a long, long time. In order to make progress on the dip bread of the Passover meal, what's the first thing we got to do? We've got to recognize that Christ officiated at four Passover meals. To rephrase that, the Passover lamb himself, the Passover lamb of God, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Revelation 13, 8, John 1, 29, Exodus 12, 5, John 1, 36, where he says, Behold, the Passover lamb of God is here. Behold the lamb of God. Revelation 14.1, Revelation 17.14. Just to recite a few Passover Lamb of God verses. The Passover Lamb himself is overseeing the eating of the Passover Lamb. He's done, and he's going to do it four times. The Passover Lamb that's eaten, and no bones are breaking in the Passover meal, testifies of Christ. He's going to officiate that four times. And John records all four Passovers. You've got to know there's four Passovers, by the way. Ah! I haven't done one of those in months. If I get a by the way, can I get rid of a couple of as you knows? At least one in other words. Dispensational grace is what we call that. But John records all four Passovers. John 2, 13 through 25, that's the first Passover. John 6, 4 through 14, that's the second Passover. John 11, 55, 12, 1, 13, 1, 18, 28 through 29, that's the third. And 19, 14 is the fourth. So there's four Passovers. You've got to put them all together and find out what's missing and what's the same and how they, how they describe everything. The fourth being obviously the crucifixion Passover. That's going to be the most significant because the Lamb of God is about to be sacrificed and the Lamb of God is, high, is handing out the Lamb of God. That was sacrificed. And obviously that's the Passover Lamb of God is the fourth crucifixion Passover. That's the Lamb of God Passover if you want to think of it that way. And that the Passover Lamb is slain. But always keep in mind that Christ must lay down His own life. No one can kill Him. John 10.17, Revelation 13.8. Nobody can kill Him. He's omnipotent. 
So understand that. You have to understand that. It's critical information. And sometimes extraordinary, something, I'm sorry, extraordinary occurs at each Passover. And then, therefore, it's necessary to go about the task of accumulating all the pieces, laying them side by side, in order to comprehend the totality of the four Passovers. And the other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, only address the fourth Passover. They don't address the first three. Now, why is that? I have three Gospels that don't talk about the first three Passover. Why is that? Anyway, our immediate task is to analyze the meanings of the dip bread, the sop. I call it the sop. And, then, of course, that's a traditional thing that is called in the Jewish community. The sop is given by the head of the table to the honored guest. We've covered that many times. So the head of the table is Christ himself. He's the head. And the honored guest is sitting there. Now, he, he makes a decision as to who's the honored guest. And there is a common position that the dipped bread, so that you know this, attaches to the coat of Joseph. Uh, that was dipped in blood to support the lie that Joseph was dead. Goat blood. Genesis 37, 31 through 32. So you'll find a lot of people, a lot of commentators that say the dipped sop and the dipped coat have a relationship. And some of those guys, uh, some of those people, can uh, they, they wish to call this the betrayal of Joseph. And they're doing that because they think that demonstrates correlation to the Judas betrayal. But it isn't a betrayal by Judas. It's a delivery. So that's, I believe, a mistake. Judas delivered Christ. He didn't betray him. You can't betray omniscience and timelessness. You just can't. And infinity. It's impossible. And so, again, don't make those mistakes. And allow me to repeat. Omniscient God who holds all of time in his hands cannot be betrayed. It's impossible. He knows all things. He can see all things. He fills the creation. He says, I fill the creation. Jeremiah 23:24. There's no place in all of the creation from which God is excluded. That is the definition of omnipresent. I need water now. Omnipresent. No one can logically defend the view that Satan Judas could or did betray the omnipresent God. No one can defend that. Now they say it all the time, but they don't even know it's stupid. I shouldn't call it stupid. Can I say stupid? They can't, they can't stop themselves, and they've never thought it through. And you cannot betray omniscience and timelessness and infinity and omnipresence and omnipotence and omnibenevolence. You can't do it. And so... If you have that view, again, find the burning trash receptacle as you already started a, a blade and, and make another deposit and put in more road flares. Oh, and, and while I'm questioning the conventional thinking on Joseph and Judas, Joseph's tunic is likely described in the Hebrew and mostly described in the Hebrew as a long-sleeved coat. That's its description, representing authority. Many colors is not accurate. In fact, many isn't in the text at all. It's in italics. Whenever you see something in italics, it's not there. So someone please offer my apologies to Dolly Parton for her songs and all of her, all these different things that they do. They, they keep building on this, on this myth that that is a multicolored coat. Well, it might be a multicolored coat. It might have colors to it in some regard. But it's a long sleeve coat by, by definition. And I'm sorry for that, not really big. Sorry. Where am I? The dip sop is not, in my opinion, representing the long-sleeved tunic of Joseph. It's not doing that. It's not, it's not in a relation. 
shipped to authority. The bread that is dipped conveys great honor upon the recipient. And this, in this case, it's Judas. And that presents a difficult question from Lecture 202. Why is Judas being honored? God is honoring Judas. Why? What does, what does the meanings, what are the meanings does the dipped bread convey? How many meanings do we have in the dipped bread? Well, we have a list, so make a list. At Lecture 202, September 10th, I propose that the SOP transmits the aspect of free will. I said the SOP has a free will component to it. The Bible is inundated with free will, much to the dismay of the people who say otherwise. You can find free will everywhere because God wants that to be the case. And it's vital that everyone who studies John 13, 21 through 30 keep to the forefront that this is the Lord God Almighty Himself doing this, the Creator of all things, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, who is dipping the bread of honor and the hand of God now holds on to the sop and offers it to Judas. He makes an offer to Judas. God has many names. The name of the second person of the Elohim is revealed in Scripture as Salvation. He is called Salvation. That's what his name Yeshua actually means. It means salvation. And that answers the question of Proverbs 34 because Proverbs 34 asks that question. What is the name of the second person of the Godhead? And the answer is salvation as exposed in the New Testament. And Christ has multiple names as you might be aware. Why does he have all these names? How many names does one guy get? Isaiah 9, 6, he's the son that is given, the child that is born. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. He's not a wonderful counselor. He's wonderful, comma, counselor. He's mighty God. He's everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. He's the truth. He's the right hand of God. He's the word made flesh. Exodus 14 says he's the I am that I am. Exodus 16, he's the bread from heaven. John 8, 12, the light of life. Genesis 1, 3 through 4, the bread of life. John 6, 35. The Good Shepherd, John 10, 11 through 14, Zechariah 11, Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Those are just some of them. He has lots of names. Why does he have so many names? Among his names, though, in my opinion, salvation is the most prominent. The name he brought, to, to, brought forth while dwelling on earth is salvation during his redemptive work phase. That's what he's doing. He's saying, I am salvation. And you can call me salvation. And we have for centuries. And he's called the angel of God when he appeared in the Old Testament. He's called uh, salvation when he appears in the New Testament. And he will be the king of kings in the millennium. So he has preeminent names for each one of his days, if you wish to think of them that way, his thousand years or whatever. All of that to emphasize that when God dipped the bread of honor and extended his hands, so he's extending his hand, let me repeat that, God himself extended his hands, his hand with the dip sop of honor and glory, and he makes an offer. Psalm 18, 35, 144.7, Ezekiel 2, 9, Acts 4.30, the right hand of God holds us up, the hand of God from above stretches out, rescues us, delivers us out of the great waters of judgment and death. So the hand that delivers us is handing the sop of honor to Judah and extending his hand. And it's his right hand. Note that God, I'm sorry, that Christ is our deliverer. He delivers us. He was delivered by the evil ones, Satan, and he delivers us. So Satan delivered him to his trial and crucifixion and he delivers us. 
Psalm 18.2, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. The one who delivers those who believe him. Those who take the offer of his outstretched hand. That's what we do. He reaches his hand down to us and we take it. Now that's a, a, a work of will. I know that that's going to cause lots of people to scream out, but it's okay. Notice the irony with God stretching out his right hand, offering the bread of honor to Judas Satan, all while knowing that Judas Satan intended to deliver him with a kiss. So now I got the kiss and the sop tied together. Did that make sense? The fact that he is giving the sop to the one who will deliver him with a kiss that attaches the sip, the kiss to the sop. And hopefully everyone can see the common view that Judas betrayed Christ is in conflict with 18.2 Psalms. Christ again, my Lord, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. This is about delivering. Deliverance is a major theme in the scripture, in the scriptures. Betrayal is not. Again, Judas delivers Christ with Satan inside of him and Christ delivers us. And That's that delivering theme. The theme of deliverance throughout the Bible. The betrayal of God is impossible. And hopefully I've beaten that rug enough to... It's in threads. John 8.31 Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you what? Free. Oh, wasn't that an interesting word? Let's put that word up there. Free. And that's probably an accident. He probably didn't mean free because you know he's into he's he's the one that predestines everything. So he didn't really mean that. He said, what he, what he said is that if you abide in my word and you are my disciples indeed, then you shall know the truth and the truth shall predest in you. That's what he said. So lay it all out. The one whose very name is salvation, who reaches his hand, who is the right hand of God, the hand that reaches out, the one who will deliver us from the evil one, Matthew 6.13. Ever notice in the Lord's prayer, it says, prayer, that, that, that. In the Lord's prayer, he says, we're, we're to say every day, deliver us from the evil one. There's that delivery again. Some of your Bibles will just say deliver us from evil, but if you find the correct translation, it will say evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. The truth shall make you free, he says. Free. Okay? So the one that's presenting to Judas the bread of honor, the bread of life, hands the seed of the serpent, the bread of glory. What do you suppose salvation is doing? That's his name. What do you suppose the salvation is doing? What does salvation always do? What does he always do when he's calling himself salvation? And I answer that question in the question. For today we have, to, we have begun to connect the sop to the kiss, but just barely. How does the sop conform to predestination? If you abide in me, my word, you will be free. How does SOP, how does that fit with predestination? It does not and it cannot. So where should we go next now? The cup would be the logical subsequent matter to investigate that now. Let me just ask this question a little bit better. Is the God of freedom, is it the God of freedom or is it the God of slavery? 
What does he say about himself? Is God, is he the God of freedom or is he the God of slavery? Romans 6, 17 through 18. But God be thanked that through you we were slaves of sin. Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. So Christ sets us free from sin. Does anybody deny that? He sets us free. Is He the God of freedom or is He the God of slavery? He's the God of freedom. So now what are we talking about? How much freedom? See, easy questions now. If He's the God of freedom and He is the God of freedom, how much freedom do we have? We know we have freedom, don't we? Because He set us free. So we have freedom. I want to know how much freedom do we have? We have established that Christ sets us free. He seeks to free us. How many will He free? And what is freedom to them and to us? The extremist determinist teaches that freedom is illusionary. There is no freedom. He's not the God of freedom because there is no freedom. That's what they say. That's what they mean. Some of them will actually say it. You don't have any freedom. And he does, therefore, he's not the God of freedom. He says he's the God of freedom. So somebody's got to have freedom. Who's got it? They say nobody has it. Not the saved, not the condemned. They say there is no freedom There's of any kind. Yet the intent of God is to do what? It's to free us. Again, how does this reconcile? It does not and it cannot. I should reinforce that this is, this is God who has decided to hand the dip bread to Judas. Got to keep saying it. The Almighty has chosen to do this. Why? You got to ask why. Does it refute Job 1.10? Does it refute the hedge when he does this? Is there a hedge around Judas? Somebody put a hedge around Judas? How complex again is this act of handing over the sop? How does it relate to the cup and to the kiss? And now the the questions keep flying out. Did Judas accept the sop? Did he take it? I asked that before. Did Judas have the sop presented to him before? Is this the first sop he's ever gotten or did he get sop some, some other time? Why is Judas being singled out for the bread of honor? None of the other disciples or apostles are. But this one is. And we know why. It's because he's the seed of the serpent. So why is he singled out for the bread of honor then? If you decided that he's always been offered the sop, why would Christ always offer Judas the sop? How many times did Christ offer offer the dipped bread to Judas? Jesus said this, In John 6, 6, 70, it comes to the forefront. Jesus answered them, and the question from his apostles is, Lord, to whom shall we go? That's what they asked him. And Christ answers by saying this, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is the devil? So he chose the seed of the serpent. He chose the seed of the servant to be an apostle. He chose the seed of the servant to receive the dipped bread of honor. Those two fit together for the same reason. The reason that he chose Judas and the reason that he gave the dipped bread to Judas, same reason. And this is a difficult statement from God. I did not choose you. Did I? I'm sorry. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is the devil? It's a difficult statement. First, we are told that God has free will, though. He had the free will to choose Judas, and he did it. 
Again, his decisions are made after all the variables are considered. He knows all the variables. God is complete. We're incomplete. We can never understand what he's doing because his decisions are so vast. Anyway, the fact, truth, that God has a free will, he chooses, uh, causes the question of whether God gave free will to angels, animals, and mankind, something that I've presented often before. In my opinion, the answer is obvious. God did not withhold free will. I understand that the atheists and the Calvinists agree that uh, vehemently they disagree with me, but they, and they agree with each other. For today, the question that is most we considered about John 6.70 is why did the seed of the woman choose the seed of the serpent? Why did he do it? Genesis 3.15 Why did he choose the seed of the serpent to be one of his twelve apostles? And again, I'm saying it's the same reason as the sop. I propose that the solution to the question is contained in the dip bread of, the, of honor, obviously, the sop. Christ intended to present, to extend the bread of honor to Judas every single Passover. He did it all four times, it's my view. So every time there's a Passover, Judas gets a sop. The question is, does he eat the sop? Does he take it? And yes, I am saying, and if he doesn't take it, what does that say? And if he does take it, what did that say? And I'm saying that the pattern of John 13, the fourth Passover of Judas, receiving the sop, was also in the other three Passovers. He did it every single time. In other words, Christ repeated it. Judas is identified as the one who delivers Jesus. Judas is exposed as the recipient of the dipped bread, even though he is the seed of Satan. And clearly, the other 11, they had no idea what was taking place. They didn't know why Christ was doing this. They just thought, well, Judas is the best. He's the one that gets the honor. And they didn't know what was really going on until after the crucifixion. After the crucifixion was assured and exposed. And if I'm right about this, then Christ extended his hand to Judas four times. Now we have more implication. Why did he do it four times? What does God believe is possible here? He keeps doing it. He keeps doing it. Keeps doing it four times every every Passover. I'm thinking about what Judas and Satan are thinking. What is he doing here? He keeps handing the sop to us. He keeps trying to tell us that we have glory, we have honor. We don't. But he keeps saying we do. He keeps honoring us. It's not sarcasm. It's not. It can't be. Uh, how do I put it? What's the word I'm searching for? It's not a ruse. He doesn't have any of that in him. So if he keeps giving the sop over and over again every Passover, giving that bread of honor, then he has a really good reason. What's the implication? What does God believe is possible? Are the questions there? Last last lecture, I posited that the sop testified of free will. I said that earlier. This lecture, I'll add to that. The sop also carries the message of Second Peter three nine. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. His promise. He's made a promise. What's His promise? The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering. He just hangs in there towards us, not willing that any should perish. He's not willing. He's going to fight for everyone. What He's going to do? that all should come to repentance. What's he assuming that Judas can do? I mentioned this last lecture. 
So obviously inferring that Judas has capability, doesn't he? And the Greek word here is bolomenos. And it's transferred, I'm sorry, translated willing. And it occurs eight times in the, in the word and is rendered intending because he would, I would. I would that none should perish, that any should perish. All of that implies that he purposed that none perish. That's his purpose. And he doesn't want any to perish. And that gets me to the cop, doesn't it? His promise without dispute is his promise of salvation. That's his name. My promise is salvation. That's my promise. Resurrection and life. Salvation. 11.5 John. Therefore, he dipped the dip bread of honor is holding the promise of salvation and something else. Free will. He's identifying that there's free will. Even in Satan. Especially in Satan. And even in Judas. Especially in Judas. You see, why did Christ include the seed of the serpent who would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman? Not just in his twelve apostles, but also with the bread and the cup of communion. Matthew 26, 26 through 28. Luke 22, 19 through 20. I asked last lecture, did Judas eat the sop? And some argue that he did, based on John 13, 18 and Psalm 41, 9. But it's not definitively identifying the sop as the bread in those verses. Did Judas, here's an easier question. Did Judas eat the communion bread? He goes through four communions. Did he eat the communion bread? Did he drink the cup of wine? That represents the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Did he do it? I want to know. Because if he did, that's something. If he didn't, that's something too. Please feel free to submit your answers for public review if you have one. This is all I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask it this week and we'll get it in a couple of weeks. So submit your answers or never raise your hand at Cliffside. That's your choices. For today, do you suppose that when Jesus, the Creator, Omniscient, Almighty God, did He know that when He spoke Matthew 26:39, Oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. When He spoke those words, He also said, Nevertheless, not as I will... But as you, did he know that he would attach the cup of Gethsemane to the communion cup? Because when you got a communion cup and you got a cup of Gethsemane, oh boy, you got two cups, you got to figure out how they fit together, right? And to Psalm 75, 8, for the hand of the Lord is a cup and the wine is red. So now we got the Psalm 75, 8 cup. Context of Psalm 75, 8 is the judge of all things. Christ is the judge of all things, John 5, 22. The Father judges no one. He has given all judgment to the Son. Then there is the cup of God's wrath, Jeremiah 25, 15-38. And Jeremiah was to take that cup, the cup of God's wrath, to the nations and cause all the nations to drink the wine cup of God's wrath. Fury. And the nations then would stagger and go mad. God makes them go, He staggers them and, goes mad, and they go mad. Now that reminds you, I hope it does, of Romans 1.28. Again, the red wine cup there has an attachment to judgment to, to the tribulation as well as Romans 1.28. Where God gives them over, he says, he gives them over to the wicked, the wickedness to descend into madness, Acts 14.16. He allows it. It's the same thing with his cup of wrath or fury. Gives it to the nations and they, they stagger and they go insane. It's tribulational. 
Jeremiah 25:15 through 38 describes to Jeremiah 25:29 a city of the wicked. Jeremiah 25:31 convinced that they will not be judged. They say we're wicked and we're not going to be judged. Does that sound familiar? They're not going to be held accountable for their insanity, their evil madness. That's that's Psalm 10:6, 10:13. Here we are. Here we go again. In Jeremiah 25:28-29, God responds to that with. Behold, I, bring, I begin to bring punishment on the city which is called by the name of God. In other words, the city is called the name of God. And he's going to bring punishment to it because it has gone insane. And certainly God reveals that he's able and qualified to bring judgment and accountability. And why is that? Because he has no sin. That's why he can bring judgment. Sin is not in his mind, Jeremiah 19.5, as we've said so many times. So why do the wicked insist that God will never bring judgment, adversity, accountability? Why do they keep saying it? They're positive of it. There is no judgment. In fact, today the, the classical atheist, atheist says there is no judgment. There's only uh, cessation of existence. But there is judgment. Ecclesiastes 12. He brings every matter into the sunlight. Every matter will be known. Obviously, Satan has been very successful in the propagation of his lies. See Revelation 27 through 9, where he all of a sudden gets a, a number like the sand in the sea, right? A huge army. He raises a huge army with the same lie. We can attack and there's no problem. Satan's basic premise is that he was forced by God to be evil. Consider that. Which would be true if God had predestined all things. Don't you agree? If God predestined them, then Satan is forced by predestination. Predestination is a force. It's an act of force. The wicked also shout that they were forced to be wicked. So they're all doing the same thing. God has forced us to be wicked by either predestination or by some other evil act. Because God's the author of evil, they claim. Thus we have this elemental question. Do you believe that it is it your position that God by force has imparted, imposed wickedness in angels and mankind. Because again, predestination is force. It forces it. It doesn't allow it. It forces. Freedom allows predestination forces. Is he the God of force or the God of freedom? Obviously, Romans one twenty eight contradicts all of that nonsense. As does copious scriptures. Acts 14.16, 2 Peter 3.9. The symbol of the cup of Gethsemane clearly has judgment as one of its components. So we write that down on our list. The cup of Gethsemane has some judgment element to it. But as it is with all biblical symbols, there is a manifold of characteristics to investigate in order to gain a fundamental understanding. It's a barely a fundamental understanding. Note there at Gethsemane that Christ has agony. He's grieved. He mourns. He has great sorrow. He has deep sadness and distress. He throws himself down on his face. That's what he's doing at Gethsemane when he's confronting the cup that he must take. There's no option. He has to take it. Why? Genesis 6, 5-6 through 6 is a complement to, to Matthew 26, 36-39. Because in Genesis 6, 5-6, through 6, what does God do? He grieves greatly. The man is evil continuously. Only evil continuously. So I have two places in John 11, 33 through 38, where Jesus weeps at the 
at the tomb of the dead that Lazarus is among. So he's weeping over a graveyard and he's greatly distressed because people don't understand who he is and what he's going to do. So we have this weeping and groaning and deep sadness of God. He is deeply distressed. Is the answer that he is deeply distressed over predestination? Does that make any sense at all? It can't happen. Again, it, it, it cannot be and it is not. Does he regret having forced predestination on men and angels to wickedness? Really, is that your view? The answer they give me is, yeah, that's our view. He has forced predestination on everything. One thing is, they love predestination. That's their altar now. They don't love freedom. They love predestination. I'm going to worship at the altar of freedom. I would, I would encourage everybody to go that direction and get away from this altar that is predestined. Force predestination. A predestination of force. Okay, because list makers are going to list, make a list. What could possibly be in this cup? What's in the cup? Then ask, what's not in the cup? We've got two problems to deal with. If something's in the cup, then there's something that's not in the cup. So everything has to be in the cup or nothing is in the cup. Then move towards how does judgment, because we know judgment is part of the cup because of the, great, the cup of wrath and fury that makes, drives the wicked insane. It doesn't drive them insane. It pu- they push themselves towards insanity. I've said before and now again that the hedge, the kiss, the sup, the sup. Where do I get that name? The hedge, the kiss, the sop, and now the cup all testify of the existence of freedom. They all do. That would be free will. What is freedom? Let me write freedom. I'm going to write, I'm going to freedom. One aspect of that is free. He is the God of the free. And He frees people. He loves doing it. So we have freedom. Wow. How do you defend that? If you're a predestinational determinist, you can't. Okay. I attempted to make the case that predestining of evil is not considered at Gethsemane. It's not there. You can look for it. You can say, okay, where is this predestinational evil? The triune Godhead has assembled at Gethsemane. All three of them are there. Christ is represented, is representing 2 Peter 3.9 that none should perish. The Father is representing the requirement that God the salvation must. The cup cannot pass away from the Son who is salvation. That's what God the Father is doing. The Son must drink the cup. Therefore, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, He's presenting the holiness of God. So I have God the Father saying the cup can't pass. I have God the Son. Uh, let me get this pro- properly. He's representing Second Peter three nine that none should perish. The Holy Spirit is saying the, the over here is the holiness of God, and we're all together representing all of these characteristics of God. And notice that the holiness of God eliminates the possibility that He conceived evil sin. And it's as simple as that. Do we believe that God is holy? If He's holy, 
then he cannot have conceived evil sin and forced it upon men and angels. Holiness, by definition, is what? What is holiness? It's the absence of sin. We have the angels, we have people, beings screaming, holy, holy, holy in Revelation 5 and Revelation 4. Worthy is the Lamb. What is the, why is the Lamb worthy? Because He has no sin. Who is the Lamb? God. God has no sin. And they'll separate Christ from God. They'll say Christ has no sin, but God is the author of sin. Well, they're the same. God and Christ are the same. Please have a logical, coherent statement occasionally. But they're not able to do it. And it's a blindness. Again, it's a worship of predestination. It's a worship of slavery. Because predestination is forced slavery. That's what it is. To put it another way, if predestination of salvation and condemnation... I get get tired sometimes. I'm really tired. If predestination of salvation and condemnation were true, it would have been declared Gethsemane. Thank you. I see that. We would have heard about it. And look at what he does. If not Gethsemane, then Genesis 3.22. Behold, the Adam has become. Behold, Adam has become like one of us, the Elohim, to know good from evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. In other words, I've got to stop him. I have to stop him from taking this, from reaching out and taking from the tree of life and live forever in a sinful condition. We've got to get, get him out of here before he does it. He's going to do it because sin always prevails ultimately. So we have to stop him. We don't want him forever in sin. We want to be able to free him from sin, right? Return his freedom. Now he's a slave and we'll, we'll free him. Therefore, God sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. If predestination was true, it would be at Genesis 3.22. If it was true, it would be at Gethsemane. Does Genesis 3.22 reveal predestination of all things? How about Genesis 6.5-7, Genesis 15, Genesis 9? Did any one of those great events demonstrate predestinational force? None of them do. Never in Scripture where the great truths of God are revealed as a horrible and dreadful decree of double predestination. Double predestination, I should define that. It's the predestination of salvation and condemnation. That's what it's called, double predestination. Never does it ever receive any attention or any mention in these fantastic scriptures. It doesn't get it. If it was going to happen, if it was true, we would see it in Genesis 6. We would see it at, at uh, Gethsemane for two obvious ones. But, but then again, you've got Genesis 15. We have the Abrahamic covenant. We have the covenant between the animals and God in Genesis 9. We'd see it there. There is no double predestination. Okay, just in the event a group exists that is confused as to the dip bread of honor as it relates to Judas. In other words, I've danced around it on purpose because I don't want to just hand it to you. I want you to reason it out. I got a call from somebody who said, I'm just trying to find Christ in the Old Testament, a young woman. And I said, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing, because that's what he says to do. Find me in the Old Testament. Search the Scriptures, he said. They testify of me. Go find me. And people are starting to figure that out, and that's fantastic. Search for him. He wants you to search for him. Why? Because you can search. What is search? It's a choice. It's an act. But anyway, just in case I've confused somebody, have I confused people? Well, yeah. Yeah. It's on purpose. It's a... It's a a style that I have. 
So uh, maybe I'll add something that's a little bit more definitive. Obviously, God was revealing something extraordinary about Judas when he extended his right hand, Matthew 25, 31-46, with the dip sopped Judas, who is the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. Now, some will insist that Jesus used his left hand and Judas sopped with his left hand and not his right hand. Now, what's his name again? He's the right hand of God that frees us, delivers us from sin. But I insist that the omniscient God in the flesh would know which hand to use for this symbol. I think he would go... He would pick this one. He is not the left hand, or maybe he's the left hand and the right hand. It doesn't matter. He's, he's not the left hand of God. He's the right hand of God. Colossians 3.1 Luke 22:69, Romans 8:34, Acts 2:33, Hebrews 1:3, Hebrews 12:2, Acts 5:31, Ephesians 1:20, Acts 7:56, Psalm 118:16, 1 John 2:1. He's the right hand of God. John 2:1 declares that the right hand to be righteous, as opposed to what? Leftus, leftus. Can't say leftus. Jesus Christ, the Word, the Logos. He's the Logos. He made, he's the Logos made flesh. The one who spoke. When He spoke, what did He use? He used language. That's how He communicates with language. And I've said many times in my, again, so-called career, language requires consciousness. Language follows from a mind. Flows from a mind, sorry. In this case, the mind of God. He used words. Matter cannot be the source of the mind. In other words, the inverse is true. The mind creates matter. Matter doesn't create a mind. So here we have all of this. You can, you can look at, at anything in here. Obviously, a mind made that wood stove. I can look at the wood stove and say, a mind made that. Conceived it, and designed it, and did it. Or whatever you want to do. You can always identify something that a mind did. That That... That matter that's there, that inanimate matter, cannot produce itself. It needs a mind. So creation requires a mind. And that's just an obvious logical position. Anyway, Christ clearly is making an offer of some sort to Judas. So you have to figure out what the offer is. I've inferred my opinion as to what the offer was. What the offer is. I just laid it out there, actually, but I'm hoping that you will at least add to it. But there's other positions we should, so we should list make. Or at least begin to eliminate through asking seemingly disconnected questions. For example, what happened to Judas's body? Because in Acts 1.18, Judas recounts Judas buying a field. Why did he buy a field? This is Judas and Satan. How smart are they? How cunning are they? Satan is the most cunning creature ever made. And he's inside of Judas. So Judas goes and buys a field. That's a cunning act. And he hangs himself over this field. What's that? That's a cunning act. Okay? And uh, this, is, this is... He threw the silver. Remember he threw the silver? What's that? A cunning act. This is the eighth mystery of the man of sin. This is one of the great mysteries. One of the eleventh mysteries. So it's a mystery. He hangs himself. That's a cunning act. The field of blood. All of this stuff is all planned. There's a plan here. 
What's the plan? Many express the position that Judas was buried in the field of blood, Matthew 27, 1-9. Zechariah 11, 12-13 adds information to that as well, which combined with Matthew 27, 1-9 indicates that the Pharisees bought the pot, potter's field of blood with the silver. What's silver a symbol of? You know, atonement. Blood. He throws the atonement, he throws the blood money, the atonement money, at the temple potter, goes out, buys a field, and hangs himself. But wait a minute, he threw the, the, the money first. We think that it's chronological here, or chronology here. We have to work all of that out. And all of that is important to succeed in resolving the body of Judas. Where, where did the body go? Does the Bible tell us what happens to Judas's body? You'll discover that many old documents, ancient documents, but doesn't mean they're right, present that Judas was resurrected after three days and three nights. Would anybody be surprised if that happened? But how did it happen? That's at least interesting in light of Revelation 13, 3 through 4, because the Antichrist is resurrected after a mortal wound to the head, right? How does that happen? I've talked to that before. Who, who can do that? Does Satan have the power to resurrect a dead body? Doesn't seem likely. Pretty complicated operation. So, you, But you'll discover that. At least it's interesting. We know that Michael the archangel did what? He took the body of Moses. Right? So I have the dead body of Moses and Satan fights over the body of Moses with Michael. Michael prevails. We know Nicodemus and Joseph took the body of Christ. Right? Did Satan take the body of Judas? Asking for a friend, if only I had one. When Judas hangs himself, what happens to Satan? Who is inside of him? What happened to the, the angels or the demons when the pigs ran into the water? Pigs said, hey, we're going to die. We're not going to be around these guys. We're just going to go die. They had no fear of death, did they? Because they saw God standing there. God said, go ahead, get in the pigs. And the pigs said, great, we're going to win. What's the only way the pigs could win after death? What's the only way? Resurrection. Did Satan take the body of Judas? Acts 1.25 tells us that Judas went to his own place. How did he get there? He's the only one of whom it is said that he went to his own place after his death. Revelation 13.1 has Satan calling Judas Antichrist. He's calling Judas the Antichrist out of the abyss. And all of that leads us to Genesis 3.15. That's the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. That's what it says. The seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Where, when, how did the Satan man bruise the heel of the God man? Because he did. Where did he do it? At the cross? A lot of people think, well, the cross. Nailed his feet to the cross. That's where the bruising of the heel is. Well, that's the Romans that did that. And Christ had to participate. And the cross the cross is what? A bruising or a triumph? Which one is it? It's a triumph. So that can't be it, right? We can eliminate time. At Gethsemane, we had great grief there. We got this distress. We got falling on our face. Is that the bruised heel? We have Judas refusing the offer of the dipped bread. What is the dip bread? Is it salvation? Is it eternal life? Why wouldn't he hand it, handle, hand it to the other apostles? Because why? 
They've got eternal life. They've got salvation. Which one is not saved? Obviously, Judas. Is it when he casts the Antichrist into the lake of fire? Because God does that. Christ does that. How about the hanging of Judas? Again, Satan is likely inside of Judas at his hanging. They did it together. Where did Satan, how did Satan, what happened? How about the kiss? Is that the bruising of the heel with the kiss? Because the son of the, the, I'm sorry, the seed of the serpent has to do it. And Judas is the one that kissed him. Now Satan's inside of him. Is that where the bruise occurs? Does Christ walk with a limp? I'm asking that. Has he got a limp? We got uh, Exodus 21, 1 through 6. We got Genesis 32, 22 through 32. We got, we got a limp there. Go put all the limps together. Prior to his choosing of Judas, did Christ interact with Judas? In other words, how long has he been interacting with Judas? We assume that he's, people assume that the first time he adds Judas to, to his apostles, that's the first time he actually knows Judas. Well, that's crazy. He's omniscient. How about his children? They know each other? How long? Gotta figure all that out. Figure out where the bruise is. Okay. One of us had fun today. <laughs>